So one of my favorite TV shows is Mad Men. I think a lot of y'all know that. Um, that originally came on AMC. Uh, the series spans the decade of 1960 to 1970. And Mad Men is a slang term that the show defines as being a way that certain advertising folks that worked on Madison Avenue referred to themselves during the 1950s. There's an episode in the second season um, that involves Burt Cooper purchasing this painting that he hangs in his office. Word starts to spread around Sterling Cooper, the advertising agency, that this painting has been purchased and that it cost a lot of money to buy it. And so all of the, the junior executives are sort of chatting about it, you know, what this painting is. Um, and someone kind of that has a meeting with Bert tells everybody that it's this huge painting and you can't help but look at it when you go into Mr. Cooper's office. Harry Crane, who is a junior executive that's trying to sort of make his name by getting Sterling Cooper to develop a TV advertising department, has a meeting with Burt Cooper the next morning, and he's worried about this painting because he thinks it's a sort of trap, that if he doesn't respond to the painting in the right way, that he'll then be discounted by Burt Cooper, who is the managing partner of the advertising agency, and his proposal won't get through. And so he is in a conference room with some of the other junior executives and one of the new secretaries, Jane, talking about this painting. And Jane rather pragmatically points out that Mr. Cooper is gone for the day and that either his secretary won't care or she might have already left already too, and that they should just go and look at the painting themselves. They go to Mr. Cooper's office and the guys start to get cold feet, but Jane just opens the door to walk in, but quickly the other uh, ad execs uh, tell her to wait and that everybody has to take their shoes off. This was a requirement that Burt Cooper had for anybody coming into his office is that they had to take their shoes off. So they do that and they go in and there's this shot of once they all get into the office to where you can see them standing there just sort of stopped in their tracks looking at this painting. Sal from the art department is the first to identify the painting as being a Rothko. And he doesn't really seem to see what the fuss is all about because Rothko paintings have been around at this point 10 or 15 years. Harry, who has the meeting with Bert in the morning, who is most worried about the painting, goes, he spent $10,000 on that. Jane, the secretary, who had led the group into the office, stops and stares at it and sort of cocks her head and says, huh, smudgy squares. That's kind of interesting. Harry then starts looking for a brochure that he thinks must certainly be nearby that would explain what the painting was supposed to mean. It's only Ken Cosgrove who stands there looking at the painting that then says, I don't think it's supposed to be explained. Maybe you're just supposed to experience it. It's like looking into something very deep. 
after this, Harry quickly declares that the whole thing is just pointless and that they should leave before they get caught. Sort of imagine this little group of people staring at a Rothko painting in the Madman episode might be sort of what it sounded like if you were standing with the Athenians when Paul finished his sermon to them. If we go a verse or two beyond what we have this evening, we're told what the reaction is by the Athenians, as some of it scoff, you know, some of them scoff at what Paul has to say. Some of them found it interesting and said, ah, they might listen again. And only a few of them go on to become believers. It's a rather mediocre response, sort of like a bunch of admin and a secretary staring at a Rothko that they don't understand. Before arriving in Athens, Paul and his companions had already caused quite a stir in Thessalonica. Paul actually gets to Athens because he's a bit on the run, being pursued for the trouble that he's caused in other towns. When he shows up there, he first debates in the synagogue, and then he goes out to the public square and engages with Epicureans and Stoics, sharing with them the gospel, listening to their philosophical debates. And all of that is what leads Paul being brought before the Areopagus, which is sort of an intellectual advisory council in Athens. See, Athens is a rather friendly city for deities, so long as the given deity is some benefit to Athenians. They can usually find a place somewhere in the pantheon of idols to put them. And Paul has caused some interest, and so he's brought before this advisory committee to see if he can make a case for his deity to be added to the pantheon, or if the deity that Paul comes to bring is not friendly or some benefit to the Athenians, then they would move Paul on out of town. Paul uses this to his advantage because he has been wandering in the square and he has seen the idols that are there in Athens. And so he points that there is an altar constructed to an unknown God and then uses this as his starting out point to declare that he can now explain to the Athenians what they have called unknown, what that actually is. And he tells them that this unknown God is actually the God that created the world and the God that now calls for repentance and has set the risen Christ as the judge of that world that that God has created. Paul, interestingly enough, even pulls from some local poets as he preaches the unity and relationship of all human beings created by God so that they may search for and find God when he uses this quote, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we too are his offspring. At the end of this masterpiece of Christian apologetics, the model for how Christians can preach Christ crucified in communities and cultures different than their own, the response is still a mixed one. For folks that look to Acts and study it, one of the first questions that comes up when you see Paul preaching in Athens is, did this actually happen? The sermon seems consistent with Paul's other writings. We do believe Paul was in Athens at some point, but we also know that Paul didn't really express much interest in this sort of cross-cultural interaction that we see depicted here in Acts. 
one commentary notes that this passage might have been a bit of, well, this is how it should have gone writing on the part of the author of Luke Acts. The writer in crafting this scene and this narrative seems to find importance in the idea that Paul could have made Christianity relevant to the Athenians, that there's value in preachers of the gospel connecting with contemporary culture and pointing to the presence of God in that particular time and place. The writer crafts this scene not only to maybe reshape what have what did happen to what how it should have gone, but also as a challenge to the reader of how it could happen in the future if we find ourselves in a similar situation. I find some humor in the fact that we are reading this story as we have worship on Zoom. Later this evening, I'll post this worship on our Facebook page for others to watch. In eight weeks' time, the frozen chosen of the Episcopal Church have been ripped from their comfortable church pews and put online. We have perhaps found ourselves in the city surrounded by idols and faced with a question of can we be relevant and point to the risen Christ in this sea of uncertainty? But I think we can learn from Paul in Athens to help us meet this moment, to let this moment be transformative, is that Paul shows us that we as a church need to be looking out and not in. Perhaps Paul invites us to set aside our debates and anxiety over virtual consecration of the Eucharist and instead turn to see that the presence of the risen Christ is already in our homes and in our communities outside of our church doors. Perhaps putting aside our anxieties about how our worship will forever be changed allows us to use our energy and potential creativity to address the systems of injustice and oppression in our communities that have been laid bare by this pandemic. Of course, we can be sad, we can be angry, we can grieve the loss of our gathered community, of our singing of hymns, of our sacraments, but that becomes, can become so all-consuming that it blinds us to the presence of Christ in the world and runs the risk of becoming an idol that leads us away from God instead of pointing us towards God. That episode from Mad Men that I talked about at the beginning of this sermon, the title of it is called The Gold Violin. The image is explained as a metaphor for not living up to your potential, but I think it's actually something even more than that. It's not just not living up to your potential, but it's really being something that is useless. A gold violin is certainly beautiful, but it can't play music. It can't do what it was created to do. Only one of the characters gets the Rothko painting when they stand in front of it, gets that it's not something that could be explained away by a brochure or a pamphlet and is something that you just have to experience. To the rest, it is at best interesting smudgy squares or at worst, just something that is pointless. Does taking the church doors literally being locked to move the church into the world? 
The question now is, will we stand there facing those doors, anxiously waiting for them to open, or will we actually manage to turn around and follow the risen Christ into the world that God has created and where God can be found? Amen.